Thank you, choir. I like that song. Hope you liked it as well. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. It's towards the end of the Bible. Very close to Revelation, but not quite that far. I want us to, this morning, finish up our Christmas series, The Great Rescue. We've just come through the Christmas season. For the last four weeks, we've been looking at what I've been calling the Great Rescue. That God promised Adam and Eve in the garden that even though they had fallen into sin, even though they had rejected Him, even though they had broken creation and broken the promise, that He would redeem them. That He would send a Redeemer through Eve who would come and crush Satan and would put an end to sin. And in doing so, He would rescue the people of God from sin. Well, we looked at the many foreshadowings of that promise throughout the Old Testament. We looked at how God covenanted with Abraham through Isaac, and then God sustained Isaac. And we looked at how God sustained the promise through Ruth to David, and through David to Solomon, and to Solomon through the kings. And ultimately, we see the birth of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the promise made to Eve and sustained throughout the history of Israel. And there in the manger was laid the king of the universe. The rescue had been begun. And so when we see the baby in the manger, as I said last week, we should be reminded that that baby came to carry out and fulfill the mission of God. And so when he went to the cross and offered his life as a once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of his people, he accomplished the great rescue of God in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And it's because of that that we have hope. And so it's right, it's good for us to set our minds as the people of God, as the church of God. It's right for us to set our minds on all of these things and to think about them. But it would be wrong of us to say that was a great thought. What's next? It would be wrong of us to forget to ask the question, how does this apply? How do we work out this great rescue, this truth of Jesus in the Bible? How do we work it out and apply it in our lives? So we need to ask these questions. What are we to do with this? How are we to respond to such wonderful news? Well, we can respond a number of ways. We can say, That's a great story, I just don't believe that story. That's silly. We could respond by saying, that's a great story, give me another great story. And it has little to no effect on us. But a right response, according to Scripture, a right response for the Christian is to say, how do I now live appropriately because of that story? Because that story, the greatest of all stories, makes demands on you and I. It demands that we see that we are separated from God because of our sin. And until that we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we remain separated. But it demands of Christians that we live like we believe it. That we live like we believe it. And the New Testament takes up this question. How are we to respond to this wonderful news? The New Testament takes up this question and answers it through a number of letters. That's what the New Testament is about. The gospel of Jesus Christ established and then worked out. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, that's what the New Testament is about. 
And so this morning, I want to focus on just a few verses out of the letter called 1 Peter. So if you've got your Bibles open and you're able, I invite you to stand. We stand to honor the reading of God's Word and proclaim its authority in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 9. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come now and join us as we've opened your word and seek to understand it. Open it to our hearts and to our minds. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us to see, O God, wondrous things in your word. Help us to see who we are and what you have called us to do in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. So you see in your notes, the main idea this morning is that Jesus has accomplished salvation for his people... And in accomplishing the salvation, Jesus has given us identity, belonging, and mission. He's given, us, he's given us an identity and belonging. He's adopted us into His family through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but He has also commissioned us, that is, given us a task to carry out in the world. We were having some technical difficulties with the video, but you saw, or hope you saw, those ladies were making shoes. One of the ways that IMB missionaries are helping people learn Jesus Christ is by meeting a very real need. A lot of people in third world countries aren't, don't have the ability to learn a skill and provide for themselves. And so the missionaries are giving them a skill so that they can earn money and provide for themselves, and in doing so, they are meeting the greater need of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in the same way that the missionaries are giving those folks, as you saw, an identity as a shoemaker, in a far greater way, Jesus gives us an identity of being in His people, being a part of His people. Well, before we jump into the text of these these two verses, I want to give you some context. We've kind of jumped in in the middle of a letter, the letter called 1 Peter, and I want to kind of bring you up to speed before I just start going. Well, Peter is explaining that Jesus is the cornerstone of the people of God. He's explaining that Jesus is the single most important member of God's people. He's the one in and through whom we are all joined together, that we are all held together. The cornerstone is that stone that brings stability to the whole structure. Paul uses this idea in Colossians chapter 1 when he says that all things are literally being held together in and through Jesus Christ. And if you really get down to the nitty gritty language part of it, the verb Paul uses to say holding together means always and forever, never coming to an end. 
So Jesus is holding God's people together always and forever, and that will never end. And so Peter uses this idea that Jesus is the cornerstone of the people of God. It is through Christ that we are held together. Well, further, this Jesus, Peter wants us to see, is the cornerstone of stability for some, and yet he's the stumbling block of offense to others. He is the cornerstone, he's the the stabilizing stone to some, and yet he is the stumbling block to others. Paul, again, uses this idea in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The cross is a stumbling block to those who don't believe. But then he says, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so Peter is developing this idea that Jesus is both the cornerstone of stability to some, and yet the stumbling block of offense to others. And we will take this topic up next week as we move back into our study of Mark's gospel. He will jump in, and we'll jump into Jesus' teaching on this very subject. But I want us to see two things this morning. The first one is the gospel identity of the people of God. Who are we if we are God's people, if we have been saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ? The Bible tells us who we are. And Peter uses four titles. He says of the first one, we are a chosen race. Or another word for chosen is appointed. God has made a choice on our behalf and put us into a position. And Peter's point is that Christians belong to God because God has chosen us to belong to Him. That He has appointed us unto salvation. Now, in this letter, Peter is writing this letter to Christians who have been dispersed around the world at that point. They had... The church had begun in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 and grew in Jerusalem. And through the missionary efforts of Paul and his disciples and the other apostles, the church has begun to spread around the world. And whereas Israel, if you recall, was a nation unto itself, if you were an Israelite, you lived inside of the nation of Israel, the church has now become not a, a geographic people or an ethnic people, The church is now spread to everyone. The gospel has gone forth to everyone. And so now the church is going into all nations. And so no longer they're confined by a geographic place. They're going into all the world. And so Peter opens his letter with this. To those who are elect to exiles of the dispersion of Pontus in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God. So here's what he's saying. The church has been scattered. The church is in all these different regions. But not only is the church in all these different regions, they're scattered because God scattered them. He says, you're where you are because of the foreknowledge of God. And now he's going to go on to develop why that's a good idea, why that's a good thing. Because these people have no control over the culture anymore. When, they were, when, when, the, when the people of God was Israel, they had laws for how you could behave. They had laws for what was right and what was wrong. But now the people of God don't control the culture. Now the people of God simply live inside of a culture. 
And so a lot of them were living inside of a culture in love with sin. They lived inside of cultures that did not pay respect to God, that did not honor God with their lives, that did not even think about God. And yet, these Christians have been called to honor and love God and to walk faithfully before Him in the midst of a culture who has no desire for such. And so Peter says, you are a chosen race. Well, Peter's point is not to raise the free will debate. Peter's not thinking, let me just say, let's let's just have a philosophical dialogue on whether we have free will or not. That's not Peter's intention. And if we bring that to this text, we are misunderstanding Peter. We are misunderstanding what he's saying here. Because he's not raising that debate, because he's going to deal with both. He's going to deal with the fact that God is in full control of everything, even my life. But I also have a responsibility to love and honor Him and to respect God. And so his point in saying that God is in total control is not to deal with my, the nature of my will, but to assure the people of God that even in the midst of suffering and sin, God is in total control. That even in the midst of living in a culture that rejects God and that loves sin and that embraces all kind of evil things, even in the midst of that, I can have a full and steadfast faith because God is sovereign even over those things. Well, Peter draws on some imagery from the Old Testament. He does that a lot if you read much of Peter's writings in the New Testament. In Isaiah chapter 43... He's quoting this. Isaiah 43, verse 21, God says through Isaiah, He says, My chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And so Peter's drawing in this rich Old Testament language to remind the people of God that God is in control. That just as God saved the exiles in Israel... So God will save His church. <clears throat> and if you recall, Israel was exiled twice as a people. They were stripped of their land, stripped of their, their heritage, and carted off as slaves. And yet God saved them and used the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the minor prophets to remind them that even in the midst of being exiled, even in being taken out of your land into another place where you don't want to be, God is still in control of that. And you can be exiled, you can be stripped out of your land and taken somewhere that you don't want to go and made to live in a city that you don't want to live in and yet have full and steady faith. Because this didn't happen and surprise God. God says to Israel, if you remember in Jeremiah 29, I'm sending you there for 70 years, get comfortable. And then when 70 years is up, I'll bring you back. And so Peter is drawing in these deep theological truths from the Bible and applying them rightly to the church and saying, we are a chosen people and therefore we have a steady and steadfast faith. We shouldn't be scared of this topic that God is sovereign, nor should we be offended that God is sovereign. We should listen carefully to what the Bible says. We should listen carefully to what God is saying to us through His Word. We should hold to what the Bible teaches, even when it confronts some of our most deeply held 
believes. And we should ask of God to help us to see clearly what is in His Word. You see, the Bible holds up man's responsibility. It says that we have a responsibility to, res- to repent of our sins and believe in God. We have the responsibility to flee from sin and to choose righteousness. But the Bible also says this is always underneath God's sovereign control. And so to know that God controls all things is a sweet gift to the church. So no matter the situation, no matter the hardship, no matter the odds, God will have the total and final say-so. We see this in the promise of Christ. God says, I'm going to send a redeemer. And all throughout Israel's history, there was sin after sin after sin. And so if it was up to Israel to maintain that promise for God, they would have failed from the get-go. They couldn't have done it. And yet they had the responsibility to do it. And yet God sustained that promise over and above their sinfulness. And so the point is this, that for you and I today, we are living in a culture that's rapidly fleeing from any kind of moral compass whatsoever. We're living in a culture where people love sin and reject God. And so Peter's point is the same, that we can look at our culture and we don't have to hope for some kind of cultural revival. We don't have to hope that the right people get into elected office so that we'll be good. We don't have to hope that if we would just get prayer back into schools, everything would be okay. Now that's fine, but that's not our hope. The hope that Hebrews 6 talks about that steadies our soul is that God is in control. That we are God's people because God has made us His people. Well, he goes on and says that we are also a royal priesthood. Or we are the king's priests, is what he says. And Peter draws this imagery in the next three titles. He draws this from Exodus chapter 19. And so if you have your Bibles and you'd like to flip over there, I invite you to flip to Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, Moses is speaking to Israel. They have come out of Egypt through the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, and now, the the Red Sea, now they are at Mount Sinai. They are receiving the law from God. They are encamped around the base of the mountain. And God is speaking to His people. In Exodus 19 verse 5, we read these words. Now therefore, if you, that is the people, will obey my voice, that is God's voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel." And so Moses, God is giving Moses this language and saying, give this message to the people of Israel. If they will obey my commands, they will be my treasured possession. Unlike any other people in the world, they will be to me a kingdom of priests. They will be king's priest unto me. 
And so when we flip back to 1 Peter and we read Peter's phrase, a royal priesthood, what Peter is emphasizing is not our status as priests, but our privileges as priests. You see, the king's priests had full and free access to God. There was a priesthood inside of Israel, a formal priesthood of the tribe of Levi, but that's not what God said in Exodus 19. He didn't say, you, of, you people of, of Levi's tribe will be the priests. What He said in Exodus 19 was to the nation as a whole, you will all be my priests. And that's what Peter is emphasizing here. That we, as the people of God collectively, have access to God collectively. The writer of Hebrews says that in chapter 4. And so as Moses is commissioning this kingdom of priests with Israel, what he is emphasizing is that the people of Israel had a special I-U relationship with God. That is the, the personal pronoun I and the pronoun you. That God is saying, I will relate to you, the people. God doesn't say that to anybody else in the world, any other people group in the world. That is something reserved only for God and His people. And what Peter's saying at is the same way that God related to Israel, He now relates to His church. And so one of the distinct truths about being the people of God is that we have this privileged relationship with God. Listen to this. God intended that every Israelite have a royal and priestly status, which is a remarkable promise to those who had just a few weeks before been slaves in Egypt. These people who were slaves, who were beaten, who were kept under Egypt's thumb, have now been commissioned by God as king priests. It's almost like the gospel, if you think about it. Because it's entirely like the gospel. God saves us out of the slavery of sin and grants us a special privilege of being His royal king priests with all of the access that comes with that position. And so we who were formerly slaves to sin have not only been saved out of that sin, but installed as royal priests unto God with full and unhindered access to Him. You see, this transcends geography. It transcends denominations. If we hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, we find ourselves in whatever situation, through the power of the Holy Spirit, having full and free access to God because of Jesus Christ. We have been moved from slaves to a nation of priest kings. The promise in Exodus 19 was that Yahweh, who is God, would dwell in a unique way among His treasured possession. His presence with the people of Israel would make them holy, but it also required them to be holy. God dwelling with them made them holy and set apart, but God also required of them. He gave them the law and said, you must also be holy. And so we are priests to God, absolutely, but we also have the ongoing call to holiness that comes with that privilege. 
If you've been in our Wednesday night studies, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 5, at the end of it, Jesus says, Therefore, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Or, to say it differently, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The implication is not that we would be without sin, because only God is without sin, But the implication is that we would walk faithfully before Him. That we would be a kingdom of priests walking faithfully and carefully before Him. You see, God tells us how to live. Sometimes we can fall into this delusion of thinking that I can believe in God, that I can believe the gospel, that I can attend church, that I can have my go-to-heaven card, and yet not have to worry about who I am. That I can have all the good things of religion and not have to worry about actually being a follower of Jesus. But make no mistake, God tells us how to live. That means living without regard to God means that we are living wrongly. It means that we are saying with our lives, that if I, if I say I believe in God, but I'm living my life without God's input, that means I'm saying I really don't believe God. And so the flip side is to be a Christian means to live with regard to God in everything. Not just how I go to church or if I go to church or what I think and what I say. It means that I, I ask of God through His Word and through prayer about every aspect of my life. God, is it right for me to do this? Is it right for me to think this? Is it right for me to feel this way? You see, the Christian is someone totally consumed by God, which leads us to the third title. Peter says we are a holy nation. This title, holy nation, also comes from Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. Where holiness means set apart for the Lord. In the context of Exodus 19, Moses is saying to the people of God, you have been set apart for God. You've been set apart for God's purposes. He's not saying God has set you apart, be what you want to be. He's saying God has, you have been set apart for the purposes of God. That is, to enjoy His special presence. To enjoy His divine favor. And what Peter intends to highlight is the church's unique relationship to God. A relationship that no other people group in the world shares. There aren't many ways to God. There is only one way to God, and it's through salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And so there's not a group of... There's not, there aren't groups, plural, of people in the world that share this relationship with God. There is one group, and it's called the New Testament Church of Jesus Christ. And Peter is emphasizing that the church is God's treasured possession. We, as the church, are to be a people dedicated fully and completely to God, which means that we conceive of ourselves, first and foremost, as God's people. If I were to ask you, Who are you? Is the first thing that comes to your mind your name? Your job? Your family? 
Or is the first thing that comes to your mind, I am a born-again Christian because of the grace of Jesus Christ? If we are to be a holy nation, what that means is that we first and foremost conceive of ourselves as God's people. You see, this is our identity. This is our primary guiding idea. When we ask about what is wisdom, wisdom is the truth of God. When we sing the song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we sing a hymn that says, O come thou dayspring from on high, and order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show, and cause us in her ways to go. That's what we're saying, that wisdom comes from God. And that if I am to live as a faithful follower of Jesus, that means that what guides me is God through His Word. Well, finally, Peter says that we are a people for His own possession. Or literally, God's own people. This again comes from Exodus chapter 19, where the emphasis of this title is on God's ownership. Of us. What's being emphasized here is that Christians now have a relationship to God which is different from that of non Christians. Christians are a people fully and completely dedicated to God in every way. And so notice that the title is not that we are God's persons, we are God's people. That is a collective noun. It means that we as individuals find our identity and our placement within God's people. There's a collective unity that's in view. That the gospel, through the gospel, we're not only saved to God, we are also saved and reconciled to one another. And so we are God's people. We have a collective or shared belief in who He is. We have a shared understanding of what the world is. We have a common way of life. We saw that in Acts chapter 2, where it says that we share all things in common. And so before I move off this point, I want to bring this up, that the people of God do not manifest these four things individually. It's not that some of you have been called to be priests, some of you have been called to be a holy nation, some of you have been called to be possessed by God. No, these are all meant to be embraced corporately and together. Each of these four truths is essential when it comes to understanding what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. It means to be part of God's people. Which is why in your notes it says that we are a chosen or appointed race also a royal priesthood, also a holy nation, and a people possessed of God. All of these things happen together. All of these things intertwine together. And so when these things do come together, when they, when they, when they manifest themselves in the life of the Christian, what we see is that we have a gospel-centered purpose which is the second point in your notes, the gospel purpose of the people of God. When we understand who we are, when we understand what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ, certain things begin to happen. The fruits of the gospel begin to come out in our life. Peter writes that we, have, we are all these things that we may proclaim the excellencies of God. 
The excellencies he talks about there, or the wonderful acts of God, means that we are proclaiming all that God has done. If you'll recall, I just read a few moments ago, Isaiah 43, verse 21, God says that I am preparing a people for myself that they might proclaim all of my wonderful deeds. And so in saving us, in saving us through the gospel, God commissions us to proclaim His wonderful works. The emphasis here is that the work of Christians is to proclaim and demonstrate through our lives the wonderful acts of God. Well, what are those wonderful acts? It's His saving power through the work of Jesus Christ. It's His ability to restore that which was unrestorable. It's His gospel-centeredness as Jesus is the center of all things. Well, let me ask you this question. How is it that you, in and through your life, how is it that you are proclaiming the wonderful acts of God in the world? How is it that you, how am I, proclaiming and demonstrating the great rescue that we have been talking about? How are we demonstrating that God has summoned us out of darkness? Peter says that He has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That word called means summoned. Or that one with authority has spoken that I am to come to Him. And the only choice I have is to obey How am I demonstrating with my life, how am I proclaiming that Christ has summoned me out of the darkness of sin? How am I showing in my home, within my family, within my marriage, within my workplace, that I have been called away from sin and out of sin and set free into the light of the kingdom of God? How am I demonstrating that I live in light of God's grace and mercy? How are you demonstrating that? Is your life seasoned by the grace of God that you have received through the gospel? Are you extending that out to others? Are you a merciful people because of God's mercy in your life? How are we demonstrating complete unity within the church? That we are God's people collectively. How are we demonstrating and proclaiming the unity that the gospel is to bring inside of God's people? I want to bring us to our reflection and application. How do we deal with this? See, the point we need to understand is that we are now a people under mercy. You see, Peter writes in verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. For those who are in Christ, we are a people under mercy. In Hosea, which is one of the minor prophets, it's a very interesting story. God calls the prophet Hosea to to marry a prostitute named Gomer. If you ever read the story, then you're familiar with it. And he says, go and take a wife who no one else wants and marry her. And have children with her. And so read the story. It's an interesting story. But it's a, it's a purposeful story. And so Hosea obeys and marries Gomer. And they have children. And God says to Hosea, I want you to name the first child, not my people. 
It sounds different in Hebrew, but that's what it means. You are to name the first child, not my people. And you are to name the second child, no mercy. Name the second child, he says, no mercy. And he's doing this to teach the people of God something specific about his salvation. You see, the people of God, or the people of Israel had rejected God. They were disobedient to His law. They had repudiated Him, which means they said, I don't want anything to do with you. And so God says, name your child, not my people, and no mercy. And He does that to say, the people of God will not be my people, and they will not receive mercy. But in Hosea chapter 2, we find a very interesting and very hope-filled passage. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, God says this to, to Hosea. He says, And I will say, or I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And so what God is doing is he is pledging what he will do in the future. He's saying to the people, you have repudiated me, you have rejected me, and so you are not only not my people, you're not even a people at all. You have no identity, you have nothing good about you. You're not good and you will not receive mercy. And he comes to Hosea and says, there's coming a time, Hosea, when not my people will become, by my grace, will become my people. And there's coming a time, Hosea, when no mercy will become mercy. And so God is pledging what He will do in the future. He is saying, I'm going to save Israel despite Israel's rejection." And so the text I read a few moments ago at the beginning of our service from Ephesians develops this idea. Paul says, remember that you were at one time Gentiles in the flesh. Meaning this, you were at one time not God's people. There was a point in your life, if you are a Christian, there was a point in your life when you weren't God's people. When you were no people. There was a point in your life where you were not under God's mercy. Paul says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of the people of God. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. But verse 13 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You know another way to say that? Once you were not a people, But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. So let me ask you a few questions as we bring this to a close. I want to invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I want you to think about this in your own heart. I want you to deal with this. 
We've just come through the Christmas season. We've just talked about the great rescue that Jesus has accomplished. We've just looked at what that means in our lives. That we are a nation of priests unto God. That we are called to holiness. That we are called to be God-centered in every way. And that we have been taken from a peopleless existence. And we have been given a full identity in the people of God. We've been moved from having no mercy from God to having full mercy from God. And so I want to ask you this morning, if you are here, are you right now under the mercy of God? Are you, has there been a point in your life where you have accepted the salvation of Jesus Christ and responded to Him in faith and repented of your sin? And if not... Plead with you today on the basis of God's Word to come to Him for rescue. To come to Jesus through faith. There's no special prayer to pray. There's nothing special to do other than coming to God in full faith that He alone saves and that He alone forgives. Well, perhaps you're a Christian this morning. I want to ask you this question. Are you proclaiming and living out the wonderful acts of God? Are you fully possessed by God? Is God your guiding thought in your life? Are there areas you need to repent of? Are there areas of neglecting the gospel in your life that you need to repent of? I would invite you to do that this morning. You see, the great rescue is to be the heartbeat of the people of God. It is the single most important factor when it comes to thinking about how we live, how we think about the world, how we think about ourselves. God, as we pray together now, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and use this word in our hearts and in our lives. I pray that you would call some to faith. I pray that you would call others to repentance, that we would walk faithfully and carefully before you. As we respond now, Lord, we pray that you'd come and meet with us and deal with us pray these things in your holy name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we respond through song. I'm available down front to pray with you. The altar's open, but let's stand and sing.
Just a few reminders as we dismiss this morning. No activities this week. Uh, New Year's uh, Day is on Wednesday. So I hope you enjoy time with your families. Use it as a time to do what we just sang, to go and to proclaim the gospel wherever you are. God is going to put you in places exactly where he wants you. And God has commissioned us to proclaim the wonderful works of God, how he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen? You are dismissed. Go in grace.